Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon, and a very good afternoon in Stellenbosch, South Africa, uh, to Nusa, Nusha Tukic, who is a research analyst at the Center for Chinese Studies at Stellenbosch University. Uh, first time on the show, and we're thrilled to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. It's, well, it's the, fantastic. It, oh, we're, we're, we're honored that you had some time to join us. In particular, we're going to be talking about Mali today. And Nusha wrote a commentary on the no, November 24th. Uh, I think it's, it is in a newsletter or you guys issue reports at Stellenbosch kind of periodically. And it was a commentary uh, called Mali China's nine, $9.5 billion railway deal. Will it come to life? And it really talks about this very high-profile deal that we saw earlier in the year a lot in the media. So on November 3rd of this year, of 2014, a multi-billion dollar deal uh, was signed between the Chinese and the Malians to develop uh, a railway, uh, a big railway line, two railway lines, in fact. Uh, $9.5 billion was going to be going to one and about $1.5 going to another line. Now, here's what's interesting about this. Chinese authorities, and this is what makes us a little skeptical here, and this is what we're going to get Nusha's take on this. The Chinese are typically pretty quick to issue press releases when they sign these big deals. But in this case, the Malians, they've gone ahead and said, uh, you know, we have a deal. The Chinese haven't actually confirmed that. And this, in, in, in some ways, brings us back to uh, what happened earlier this year with Robert Mugabe. Robert Mugabe, if you recall, uh, went before his big trip to Beijing, said, I've got these big deals and they've signed all this aid. And turns out that the Chinese didn't and really slapped, uh, slapped Mugabe down for doing that. And so it doesn't seem like the Chinese will respond very well to this. So Nusha, tell me what's really going on. And if there's smoke, is there fire? I mean, is this deal as kind of tentative as it sounds? Well, um, thank you for the question and and for explaining it to the audience a little bit further. Um, for what we've gathered through our extensive Googling and research and, you know, talking to different people, um, the deal has, in fact, not yet been signed, as it seems, from media statements. Uh, like you've mentioned, the Chinese side has not confirmed anything nor disconfirmed. Uh, so we really don't know what is actually going on. Um, Reuters published a um, an article on 3rd November 20. 2014 saying that this deal is in the making and that uh, Mali officials have come out saying that it's already set in stone. Uh, but on the Chinese side, there's absolutely nothing yet. Um, so this could either be interpreted as a way for the Malian officials to um, strong arm the, the Chinese side into agreeing on the deal, uh, leaving them basically with no other option but to say, yes, okay, we are involved in the deal. We are giving this and this amount of money for the railway construction. Um, but like I said, it is still very uncertain. Um uh, like you mentioned, the Mugabe and and the different deals that he came out saying that were concluded, um, we've seen that across a lot of other African countries as well. For example, in late September, um, there was an article saying that Uganda is also playing a major eight billion uh, U.S. dollar deal, also to construct a network through the country, and that the Chinese side is uh, being targeted for it. Um, so clearly, China seems to be the um, sort of 
um, go-to uh, partner for these major infrastructure deals, um, but they they seem to be quite <laughs> quite silent on these latest developments. How amenable do you think China is to this kind of pressure? I, you know, kind of as as you mentioned in in other cases, there's also been many, also these kind of moments where Chinese where African leaders announce these deals. Um, I remember a similar situation, similar kind of embarrassment in South Sudan a, a while ago. Um, and then the Chinese seem relatively, you know, kind of, un, you know, not, not, they don't seem to have a lot of problems saying like, no, actually there is no deal. Or do you think they, they actually can kind of be embarrassed into, into signing the size of a deal? Well, I think when we're dealing with China, it, you know, it's it's such a major player and such a major power uh, uh, currently in the world and, and in Africa specifically. Um, I don't necessarily think that you can strong arm them or embarrass them to the extent where they will then actually agree on it. Uh, but I think it it somehow uh, makes an environment of. Um, you know, if we don't sign the deal, we will be perceived as, you know, um, negative again. Uh, and we know that in, in Western media particularly, I mean, China is demonized all the time for this, that or the other. Um, so I think they're very cautious in the way that they approach these things nowadays. Um, uh, in in specific instances where it doesn't suit them, they will, of course, say, no, okay, the deal is not on. We don't want any part in it. Um, but I think they, they're weighing their um, their chances much more now than, than what they would have done previously. Well, let's dive a little bit deeper into what these deals are about so people have a, a little bit better understanding. So there's two parts of the proposed deal. We won't even say it's a deal. It's a yes. proposed deal. Uh, so $11 billion is the total. We said $1.5 billion for one line, $9.5 billion to another. Now, the problem for Mali is that it's a landlocked country. Now, it's a pretty resource-rich country, but it's difficult to actually get those resources out. Uh, that's one of Mali's many problems. So one of the lines would connect uh, the, the capital of Bamako to the Ghanaian uh, port capital of Konarki, and the other one would link Bamako to Dakar. So this yes. is a very interesting concept here because, you know, Mali has long been a, a dreamed of place for natural resources. It has, correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, from your article, iron ore, bauxite, uranium, and most importantly, gold. So those are all very yes. tempting resources. Certainly the French were drawn there at one point. Uh, you know, the Americans are there now, but not obviously because of resources, but because of Islamic terrorism. So Mali now is attracting a lot of international attention, not always for the best reasons. And so it brings me up to this next kind of question, which is the Chinese are, are getting a little bit more nervous about investing in unstable areas. They're bogged down now in South Sudan. They've had problems in the DRC. And there's been this kind of meme that is circulated within Chinese foreign policy circles that says, you know, maybe these volatile regions of Africa are not worth it right now. And we're going to start refocusing our investments into more stable areas such as South Africa, Zambia, Ethiopia, and kind of keep the South Sudans, you know, at bay for now. Mali certainly mm -hmm. falls into that post-conflict type of, of, of scenario in part because, well, I don't even know if it's post-conflict. It's currently got a conflict. Uh, maybe a low-grade one, but certainly with a country like Libya on your border that is, you know, uh, basically stateless now, um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't blame the Chinese necessarily for having some pause. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, no, I completely agree with you. Um, and um, 
keep in mind that the Chinese side also uh, has been affected by the financial crisis as well, and that investments have stopped or uh, scaled down due to that as well. Um, however, we still keep on seeing that, that China invests in um, projects and in places is where others don't go. Um, the West, for example, um, they don't want to invest in, in um, areas and in countries that are prone to conflict, like the DRC, like Zimbabwe, like Mali, like you mentioned, and Libya, and so forth and so on. Um, but what we see from the Chinese side is that they still keep infrastructural projects where the West has been approached to do those, but they don't, saying that they don't have a justifiable reason for poverty reduction. So, um, the, for example, the third um, bridge in Bamako as well that China was um, um, building, um, that is one of the instances where Western companies didn't want to invest because they said, no, well, we can't really see it economically justifiable or feasible, and we don't see how that's going to alleviate poverty in the country. Um, with regards to uh, the um, conflict, um, I think China has been sort of slammed down, um, not to a large extent, but somewhat uh, with regards to the Malian conflict um, that is still going on or still has repercussions of it because they didn't intervene. But I mean, if you follow Chinese foreign policy and, and the five principles of coexistence and their rule of non-interfering in domestic affairs, they have just been consistent with that policy. Um, although, however, they have later on sent troops, peacekeeping troops and medical assistance and technical assistance, um, to which some have then claimed, no, but you know, they are um, now going back on their word of non-interfering and whatnot. But I think that is just, in my opinion, it is just criticism that is unfound, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and in many cases, we see that, that it's unfound criticism. And there where you actually should criticize, there is none. So whose fault is that then? You know, we get into a whole bigger discussion about things now. Yeah, and let's not forget, of course, that the Chinese have a rather significant UN deployment, military deployment in Mali right now. Exactly. And so yeah. that, up second, I think, now to South Sudan. So uh, they're not combat troops, but they are support troops. But again, they're on the, zo they're on the ground in, in, a, in a combat zone, if you will. <laughs> You know, Kobus, when we're talking about Mali, it's one of the rare instances that we start to see the Chinese, again, who knows what's actually really going on here. So let's not even pretend that this deal is, is being done. But let's assume that there is some discussion going on, and it seems to be more activity in French West Africa, which I find interesting because it's one of the areas of weakness that the Chinese have had in all of the continent. When you look at the investment maps of the continent, French West Africa is the the least populated with Chinese investment. And so it seems like the Chinese are developing a taste or a knowledge or some sophistication in how to approach uh, the Francophone countries uh, in Côte d'Ivoire, in Mali, and some of those other countries. What's your thought on that? Well, this week we saw um, rumors, uh, well, I picked up rumors in, in, in Africa coverage that there is apparently a new investment fund that's being planned between China and France. Um, I've been poking around. I haven't been able to find a lot of of, um, of information about it, but it, it's apparently being discussed very high up between Paris and Beijing. Um, and, you know, it's it's 
apparently aimed at at kind of ex, you know expanding economic growth in um, in uh, in West Africa. So the idea would be that it's essentially Chinese money or Chinese investment that that kind of is is distributed in cooperation with France because France has such a kind of a strong historical network in West Africa. And it was interesting. I loaded it on a story you know to that extent on our Facebook page, and the, it was interesting to see the very negative reaction that I got from our Facebook users. Where they're all like, no, you know, um, and um, like, you know, kind of why does France, why, do, why does China want to work with this historical colonizer um, and so on. So it is, it's interesting to see the kind of emotional triggers that that that, that actually affects. Um, um, so Nusha, I was, I was wondering what you thought about that and whether you, you see scope for some kind of positive fallout from, from a cooperation between, between uh, China and France. Or is France's presence in West, in West Africa just so toxic that it, it nothing good will come out of it to be honest i first of all i haven't uh, uh seen anything about this fund that you're talking about i'm gonna have to look into that um uh from my research i mean i'm not that familiar with um the the french um former colonies in in africa um i've only recently started working on that um so i i don't necessarily find myself qualified to say anything on it mm. um but from what I gather, I mean, the French still have a very strong hold on on their former colonies, much more so than than, for example, the UK does. Um, and yeah, exactly. I think, and you know, kind of also, yeah. I think the the Chinese um, peacekeeping, you know, while it while it took place under under you know kind of UN auspices, that peacekeeping, as far mm -hmm. as I understand, um, you know, kind of was very very much kind of spearheaded by France. Um, you know, kind of with, yes. within a UN UN kind of structure, but you know, kind of very French dominated. So you know, kind of in, to a certain extent, I mean, just looking from the outside, and I'm very much not an expert on this on this issue, but I mean, it it, it does seem to have prepared the ground for some some kind of greater cooperation, even if this fund that that's being rumored doesn't actually materialize. I don't know. Well, uh, you know, with regards to your, your question about whether or not there might be some prospect for future cooperation, I, you know, I think that China is a big player and China is a big kid on the block. So I don't think necessarily that um, they need a green light or anything like that from the French side uh, in order to approach French African countries. I think they're fully capable of doing that themselves. But also we are in the larger scheme of things forgetting that the French African countries like Mali, like, um, you know, Senegal and, and so on and so forth um, are in fact the ones that also in certain instances approach China themselves. Um, regardless of whether or not the official Paris says yes, that's okay or that's not okay. So, so we're forgetting the the agency that these African countries have themselves. We still sort of, you know, talk about it and and think about it in terms of former colonial powers, even though these countries have been independent since the 1960s. Yeah. Um, and that's what so we've seen that in is, Guinea. That what, that's absolutely the case in Guinea, where they, the, the Ghanaian government has been, you know, trying to play, in fact, you know, have some choice for the first time, being able to deal with, with rival bids and whatnot and to lower prices and to get better deals. Uh, I, for mm -hmm. one, am very, very skeptical of these kind of, you know, cooperation kind of ideas. Because, again, as you pointed out, Nusha, the Chinese don't have any incentive to cooperate. 
mm-hmm. you know, it's some, it, you know, and it just strikes me that the Americans and the Westerners are always like, hey, we can partner with the Chinese to do things. And I can see that they have an incentive to partner, but the Chinese, I don't think they do. And there's really no precedent for it. So in some ways to see these security operations where you have U.S., U.N., Chinese, all kind of bunched up together in places like South Sudan and Mali, that's an interesting area of potential cooperation. But on the corporate side or the deal-making side, I'm not sure they have the same agenda. And in part because the Chinese are there clearly for natural resources. We talked again about iron ore, bauxite, uranium, uh, and gold. Mm-hmm. Let's put gold aside for now because gold is really you know, still booming in value. Um, but oil is down to $70 a barrel. We're in, seeing a commodity slump in many key key sectors. Iron ore, you know, is very tenuous right now based on Chinese steel exports, which are still going strong. But everybody predicts that there's an oversupply right now of low cost Mm -hmm. Chinese steel on the market. So that could potentially have uh, a pretty calamitous effect on iron ore prices. But more worrisome, actually, is the kind of health of the Chinese economy. And China has been Mm -hmm. sucking up these resources from all over the world, in part because, well, it needs to feed a booming economy. If economic growth in China slips Mm -hmm. below 6%, which is what the real number people think is actually going on, um, it may not need as many resources. So I think it leads us to the question of potentially these deals do not seem as attractive to China as they did maybe uh, one or two years ago. And the Chinese are getting cold feet for a 10, 11, 12 billion dollar rail deal in a volatile part of the world. No, I completely agree with you. And I mean, um, when you when you say, you know, um, this is just one of those alleged deals. So we have several in other parts of Africa. So, I mean, uh, if there is no incentive, of course, and there is no um, um, future sort of payback on it, um, then then why would they? Um, and I suppose they have to then target the ones that are still of importance um, and drop the ones that aren't. But I think another thing that we keep on forgetting um, is that, yes, China has to feed its own growing economy, but the majority of these things that um, that China extracts from Africa, um, like iron ore, like like um, um, copper and, and all different sorts of uh, minerals and metals, uh, I mean, those are all also used as parts in in commodities that we in the West also consume. So it's a supply and demand sort of driven thing where we're forgetting the the role that the West, um, me included, you probably as well. I mean, all everybody who has a Samsung or who has an iPhone. I mean, sure. we know that that those parts have been harvested from from Africa, from Latin America, and so on and so forth by the Chinese, but. You know, we we don't acknowledge our own sort of demand for those things. So, and also, you know, kind of just just to add on to that, I mean, it it, it struck me a little bit, you know, not to be down on Mali because I mean, Mali has a lot of problems, but you know, to 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 campaign for a, a you know a, essentially one use railway line that's going to be mostly used to just extract stuff out of Mali and then export it out, you know, kind of via West African ports to somewhere to to be refined somewhere else. I mean, it's such a depressingly typical kind of African, you know, kind of a you know, solution to, you know, to, to underdevelopment. You know, it's a solution that's not going to help underdevelopment. That's not going to, that's not going to, you know, make anyone richer except for small elites. It's um, you definitely know, colonial I mean, in nature. You're right. 
the, the question is just like, isn't there, isn't there a different, a more creative option for Mali to deal with this, this kind of gold that it's sitting on? You know, in the first place, you know, if you just, you know, within an African context, Mali has a particular, particular kind of status, you know, kind of because Timbuktu is an ancient center of learning. Mali is a bit, has, you know, in soft, African soft power terms, Mali is very blessed, you know, kind of it's almost universally positively positively viewed, you know, in Africa as this kind of ancient center of, you know, kind of pre, pre-colonialist learning. Um, so there must be, so, you know, and also an ancient center of, of artisan skills. So, I mean, the, the fact that Mali can't like kind of leverage that plus its own raw gold into at least a little jewelry line or something, you know, kind of makes me tired, you know, kind of like why, why is the extracting exporting model the only one that they can think of? Yeah, that is, I think, the million-dollar question that we're all trying to answer or at least figure out. Um, we we often talk about, you know, um, value-added products, and and that is clearly the way to go. But how do you go about that in in a society where uh, the majority of the people live under the poverty line, lack education, have no technical skills? Um, how do you go about that? So then. Uh, in my view, and I think um, some people will agree with me on it, is that um, countries like Mali should then, um, instead of allowing for this kind of deal of, you know, uh, extract the resources, transport them to a port and then transport them to China or wherever else, um, I think they should advocate and, and stay persistent on it that they need technical uh, assistance and that um, none of these things, none of these deals can come to life. Um, um, the extraction of things can come to life before um, somebody assists them with, um, you know, technical capabilities, advancements, education, and so on. I mean, maybe that's simplified, but, you know, often the simplest thing is the best thing. So <laughs> I don't yeah. know. Well, China-Mali relations are one of the lesser explored and least understood aspects of China's engagement in Mm -hmm. Africa, and it's one of the areas that I think we will probably see a lot more of to come in the future, in part because Mali, well, as Kobus pointed out, is sitting on a whole bunch of natural resources that, whether it's the Chinese or somebody else, will probably not let sit in the ground forever. So one way or another, uh, it will come out, you know, so we'll kind of follow this. Nusha Tukic is a research analyst at the Center for Chinese Studies at Stellenbosch University. She has a wonderful commentary uh, on the CCS website. Uh, Mali, China, $9.5 billion railway deal. Will it come to life? Uh, Nusha, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. And do you, one of the things we like to do at the end of every show is kind of, you know, once we've introduced you now to our audience, if they want to stay in touch and follow some of what you're doing, do you have any presence on social media of any kind? Uh, Yes, I do. I have my private uh, Facebook account. I'm unfortunately not a Twitter fan or anything like that. So I don't have that. We'll we'll spare you, you know, saying, you know, sharing your private, uh, you know, account information. But uh, your your work is available over on the the Stellenbosch website, the Center for Chinese Studies. Uh, And so I do recommend everybody go check that out. Just look for Center for Chinese Studies, Stellenbosch University over on uh, on Google. We have it on Facebook as well. Facebook as well. And I think that uh, Kobus, if I that CCS underscore Stell, S-T-E-L-L, if I remember correctly. Um, we need yes, to, we and need the, the to, URL is, is ccs.org.za. We, we need to work with the, you know, help the, uh, the the Stellenbosch, the Center for Chinese Studies, you know, come up with a better Facebook name because CCS underscore well, Stell is... 
<laughs> well, <laughs> not the, the most intuitive the, name. The easiest way, the easiest way to access CCS's work is through our Facebook page. It's Facebook.com/slash/ChinaAfricaProject because yes. because we regularly we we post all of their work. We love what they're doing over there. So no no offense, please, on my critique of your Facebook name. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and Kobus, if people want to follow what you're doing for an almost equally cryptic Facebook uh, Twitter handle, what's the best way for people to stay in touch with you? Yes, my terrible Twitter handle is Stadenesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. I have to admit, I, at first I thought it was terrible, but now there's some charm to it. It's, it's very, it's actually, you're very unique in the uh, in the space with a with such a creative name. Uh, my name isn't anywhere near as charming as uh, as Kobus's. I'm at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R, tweeting the top China and Africa headlines almost every day. And of course, you can follow Kobus and myself over on our Facebook page, 256,000 followers now uh, from all over the world. It's a great discussion that's going on every day. Uh, just follow us. Uh, look for China Africa Project. And we're, t- we're posting headlines and discussions uh, almost 18 to 20 hours a day. Copus does it over from South Africa. I'm over here in Asia. So we've got the clock covered there. And finally, if you'd like to listen to the podcast and kind of find different ways of sharing it, uh, SoundCloud, Stitcher, uh, and of course, over on iTunes, just look for China Africa Project. We'll be back again soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.